1 Samuel chapter 4. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can find that on page 228 in the black Bible in front of you in the pew. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to read the whole chapter together this morning. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistine, and they encamped in Ebenezer, and the Philistine encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistine, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistine? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistine, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? And he brought the news And he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistine, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, 
and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pain came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before your presence this morning, and we pray that we as a congregation would be a people who listen to your words, that we would take heed of your scriptures, that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning through the scriptures. We, we pray for Kevin this morning as he comes, that you would empower him to preach boldly and for your glory alone. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, church. I wanted to highlight one thing before we uh, begin this morning. If you looked in the, uh, the bulletin this morning, we are going to be having a men's retreat in uh, April. And I want you to put that on your calendars now. Really looking forward to that. Um, we've, it's going to be here at the church. We've done that in the past, and it's worked out really well. And so um, uh, please plan on attending that. Uh, Jim Fain is going to be joining us. And if you've ever been under his teaching, you know that um, he is a tremendous communicator, especially in the area of biblical counseling. And so we're going to be looking at that from a man's roles perspective. And so I'm really excited for, for what we're going to have there on that weekend. And so uh, we'll give you more details as we get closer to that. But I uh, wanted to make you aware of that. As we begin this morning, um, I used to work with a man who um, took a half day off of work to go to the BMV. This was back several years ago when you actually did have to take a half a day of work, off of work to go to the BMV. It was worse than it is now. And he, he, he did his duty, he sits in line for a couple hours, he, he needs a new license plate, so he pays for it, he gets the temporary plate, and then a week later, the real plate comes in the mail, right? And so he gets the plate, and he's starting to put it on his car, and he, um, he stops, uh, he takes the plate off, he puts the temporary plate back on, schedules another half day off of work, goes back into the BMV, and says, I refuse to take this license plate because the last four numbers are 1313. And uh, he paid for a new plate, got a new plate, and they shipped it to him. And um, he's putting it on, and the last three digits are 666. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would have been funny, wouldn't it? <clears throat> uh, but, uh, and 
We get a good chuckle out of, out of that kind of superstitious thinking. And I think sometimes we think superstition is something that maybe is, is way in, in the past, uh, where before people were more educated and knew more things about science and other things. And yet superstition still persists in our culture. The top five superstitions in the United States based on surveys even yet today are the number 13 or Friday the 13th, uh, black cats, walking under ladders, breaking mirrors, and my personal favorite, knocking on wood. Let's, let's take a minute and discuss the theology of knocking on wood. The, there is either God or some supernatural force is watching all seven billion people on the earth to see if you're going to say something good about your life, that things are going well, nobody's sick in my family, everything's going well. And, and then they're saying, but, but did they knock on wood? And if they didn't knock, and it has to be real wood, not fake wood. If they didn't knock on wood, that God or that power or that cosmic force is going to strike you with some sort of calamity, such as the theology of knock on wood. And, and, and yet, when I looked at First uh, Samuel 4 this week, and the idea of superstition came as a theme, I looked up the definition of superstition, and it gave me a moment of pause. And I actually have it up on the screen here. Superstition is a belief that a natural action brings a supernatural reaction. And by that definition, if that's the definition of superstition, then most religion and most religious activity is glorified superstition. Think about what most religion and most religious activity is, right? If I do this, or I don't do this, or I say these words, or I say this mantra, or I pray in this particular way with these particular words, or I go through this ritual or this ceremony, then, then whatever God or deity or power I am worshiping is going to be compelled to give me what I want. That's, that's most of religion. Now, we as Christians would quickly distance ourselves from that kind of thinking. We don't even consider Christianity a religion in a sense that religion is us trying to get to God. The gospel of Jesus is God coming down to us. So we would distance ourselves from that kind of empty religious thinking. And yet, history has taught us, and church history has taught us, is if there is a mindset that is prevalent in the world or a mindset that is prevalent in religion, it will find its way into the church. We certainly see this mindset in 1 Samuel chapter 4. The main point for this morning is this, godless religion is powerless. We could say that a lot of different ways. Godless <clears throat> religious activity is powerless. It's not only powerless, it's, it's deception that leads to destruction, which is what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 
And so if you turn there to 1 Samuel 4, if you haven't already, I wanted to start with just a word of introduction about one of the main features in this chapter, the Ark of the Covenant. Because while we would distance ourselves from this type of superstitious religious activity, uh, the things that happened to Israel happened as an example for us and as a warning for us. And so I think there is much in this chapter for us to be discerning about. And one of the main features is this Ark of the Covenant, which became the part of the problem that Israel had that led to their defeat and ultimately their destruction. If you don't know about the Ark, it's, it's good to have some context in why Israel's view of the Ark would have led to them doing what they did in chapter 4. The Ark was the most sacred artifact that God had given to his people. You can see the sort of the picture there. It was gold, and God had designed it, and it, was, it had these cherubim, golden cherubim on the top, and the mercy seat there, which represented the very throne of God in heaven. And it's where God's presence resided. And it was put in the, in the tabernacle, in the, the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the tabernacle, where the presence of God would dwell, and no one could enter except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, right? And even then, the cloud of God's presence protected the high priest from God himself. But the ark didn't just stay in the, the tabernacle. It led them when they would move from place to place. It led them throughout the wilderness. It led them through the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River. It led them around the city of Jericho in that great victory. It led them through the conquest of the promised land. And it finally comes to rest in Shiloh, kind of its semi-permanent home since a temple had not yet been built. So it's easy to see uh, that, that Israel would look at this ark in the way that they did and have so much faith and belief in the ark of God. But if you look at what Moses said about the ark, if Israel had paid attention, they would have seen the truth here that Moses is going to share, that the power of the ark is not in the ark, but in the God of the ark. Look what Moses says in Numbers chapter 10. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, listen to what Moses said. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Moses knew that the ark was just a box. And that the power of the ark was in the presence of God. But Israel could never get beyond the symbol. And that, that uh, flawed belief that they had is going to cost them dearly in 1 Samuel chapter 4. What we're going to see in this chapter is this. We're going to see Israel's belief, which really was their deception, which leads to Israel's grief, which is their destruction. And then at the end, we're, we're just going to peek ahead a little bit, even though this ends in a very terrible place. There's something we can learn here about what's coming that I think is useful. So we're going to look at Israel's hope at the end. Israel's belief 
here in these first nine verses. It starts very interesting with this phrase, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. If you remember last week from Toby, the, the rise of Samuel is coinciding with the fall of Eli. Eli and his wicked sons, who were terrible leaders. And, and this little note that the word of Samuel is coming to Israel, God is raising up a godly leader, but that's the last place you see Samuel in this chapter. You won't see him in chapter 5, you won't see him in chapter 6, he doesn't come back on the scene until chapter 7. God raises a leader and Israel is ignoring him. And they're still following their wicked leaders, Eli and his sons. And they go out to battle against the Philistines in verse 1. They encamped at Ebenezer, <clears throat> and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Israel is defeated here. But they weren't defeated because the Philistines were just a superior military force. Israel was defeated from within, not from without. They were defeated for two reasons. They had failed leadership that led to failed morality. Eli and his sons had failed Israel in their leadership, which had led Israel to begin to worship False gods, we see that in chapter 7 when, when Samuel calls them back. They've been worshiping false gods. They have rebelled against God. They were not following him. Maybe they were going through religious rituals, but their heart was far from him. In failed leadership here, we see the consequences of failed leadership. It didn't just affect Eli and his sons. It didn't just affect their family. It didn't just affect the families of Israel. It, it affected the entire nation. Failed leadership has severe consequences. We could say that about the family. We could say that about the church. We could say that about our nation, right? Why do we pray for the leaders in our city and our states and our nation, because failed leadership is something that's going to impact all of us. And, and this failed leadership leads to a failed morality. And as I was thinking about this in the context of our church over the last year, you see what Israel does here? They get defeated, something bad happens. And they look for a human solution. They actually start in the right place. The leaders of, this, of the, the people, the elders here, they actually start in the right place, and they recognize that God was not with them. In verse 3, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And yet they start with the right question, but they end with the wrong answer because they try to throw a human solution to the problem. Well, something has gone wrong here. What do we need to do about it? Well, what's worked in the past? Well, in the past, the ark was our, you know, was our lucky charm. That's, that's the problem here. They didn't even think that it might be spiritual. They didn't think that maybe God wasn't with them because of their rebellion. They said, we got an answer. Here's the formula that's worked in the past, and, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to pull out the ark. That's a normal human thing to do. When you, come, when you come up against a problem. You ever have a 
relationship that you're in and, and you, you sense that there's something wrong in that relationship and you just can't put your finger on it. Or maybe that happens in your family. There's something going on in a family and, and you know something's not right, but you just can't put your finger on it. Sometimes that happens in a church. And sometimes the pastor of the church senses that there's just something not right and I can't quite put my finger on it. That's what Toby said to us last year. There's something that God had stirred in his heart that there's something just not right and I can't put my finger on it. The natural response to that is to say, all right, let's brainstorm this thing and let's figure out an, an answer to this, right? Let's, uh, you know, let's change what we're doing in worship or let's start a new program and do this or let's just mix things up a bit or let's read this book together or let's find this, this formula that worked for this other church. But that, that's not what our pastor challenged us with, right? He said, we need to be in the presence of God. And we need to pray. And we need to fall on our face before him and ask him to change us and stir in us the work of the Spirit, that we would be passionate for holiness and passionate for evangelism. I'm thankful for that kind of leadership. Because we have seen God working, right? I am, I've been here my whole life. And I don't know that there's a time in our church's history that I have been more encouraged as to what God is doing in this congregation. How he is moving us to pray. How he is moving us to evangelize. How he has moved you to love and serve each other. How he has moved us to have a heart for the orphan. How he has moved us to have a heart for him and to be in his presence. Israel didn't do that. They tried to uh, manufacture a human solution when it was a spiritual problem. And they suffered the consequences. You see, Israel believed in the ark of God more than they believed in the God of the ark. And you see here, he says, the, the, the people... Um, after they say, why has the Lord defeated us? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from, from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. You know, that should have been the first clue that God was not with them. <laughs> Their wicked priests are bringing this thing out. If God's presence was with that ark, they would, they would not have survived that, right? If you know anything about the history of the ark and God's presence. And so the ark of the covenant came into the camp and all Israel gives a mighty shout so that the earth, the word there is shook. They literally produced an earthquake by the shout when the ark came out. You see, Israel's faith is in the ark. But it is a flawed faith because it has a flawed focus. See, what Israel really had done here is they had put God in a box and they put him in, in the, the Holy of Holies and they were content for him to stay there and they were content to ignore him and rebel against him and worship other gods until something bad happened, and now they're going to pull God in his box out to solve the problem. 
No desire to serve him. No desire for holiness. No desire to actually be in his presence. Just God in a box. Now, now we don't have these physical artifacts like Israel did that we can pull out. I mean, I guess we could wheel the communion table around if we make that feel, us feel better, but uh, we don't have an ark. We don't have religious artifacts. But, but we can be discerning about what is happening here, right? How easy is it for us to go through the motions of religious activities, right? And, we, and, and really, we, we've got God in a box. We pull him out on Sundays. We go through the motions, and then we put him back. And my religious activity on Sunday does nothing to impact my life on Monday. That's empty, godless religion. That's powerless. They had a flawed faith that led to a flawed focus. You notice their response when the ark comes out? <laughs> lots of noise. Lots of emotion. No heart for God. No change. No repentance. Some have taken that and, and tried to make that into an indictment of modern worship which tries to manufacture emotion. I don't know that we would go that far with it, but there is something to be discerning about there. Sometimes emotional response during religious activities can mask the issues of the heart. As we were singing here a few minutes ago, my righteousness is Jesus' life. Now, I couldn't sing the rest of that verse. I was moved by what I was singing and who I was singing to, but if my emotional response masks the issues of my heart and, it, and my emotional response on Sunday does nothing to impact my life when I walk out the doors, it's just empty religion. It's just empty ritual. If God is moving and the Spirit is moving, it is going to have an impact on my heart. It's going to have an impact <clears throat> on my life. It's going to change me. Israel had, <clears throat> had a, lot of, a lot of emotion, a lot of noise, but their heart was far from God. They had taken this sacred thing that God had given them which was to point them to God and for the focus to be on God, they had taken it and they had twisted it and made it more about them. And again, we don't have artifacts that we, that we uh, worship, but there are sacred things that God has given us that if we're not careful, he's given us these things to point us to him and if we're not careful, we can make them more about us. Let me give you just a couple examples. God has given us faith, he has given us prayer, and he has given us the church. All very, very important things, vital things for our faith, for our, for our relationship with him. Things that are intended to point us to him, and if we're not careful, we can turn those things and make them more about us. You know it's possible to have faith in faith? More than having faith in the object of our faith, God himself. 
this idea that that you know faith itself is really the the uh, the goal, and that if if I work up enough faith in myself, I can solve any problem. There are people in this congregation this morning that have been told by their friends and family that your child is sick because you don't have enough faith. Your husband is dying because you don't have enough faith. These, all these problems in your life are because you don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't be having these kind of problems. And so faith almost becomes a human achievement, something we achieve that is kind of, again, think about the definition. It's a human achievement that I'm going to use to manipulate God to get what I want. I'm going to faith my way out of every situation. When God gave us faith to connect us to him, God gave us faith so that, that our, our trust and our hope can be in him and his goodness and his sovereignty and his power. Beware of taking what God has given us to point us to him and making it more about us. What about prayer? Prayer can very easily become just a ritual that we go through, right? If we, if we pray hard enough and we say the right things in the right order and we say the name of Jesus enough times that God will give you what you want. And if there's something wrong in your life, it's your fault, you're just not praying hard enough. And prayer just becomes a superstitious activity or a human action that I'm trying to manipulate God. Rather than, as Kurt prayed, Prayer is what brings us into God's presence. And though our circumstances may not change, prayer changes us, and it draws us to the will of God. Prayer is, is not intended to pull God's will to ours. If we're not careful, prayer becomes an empty religious ritual that I'm trying to manipulate God to get what I want. What about the church? God has given us the local church. We need to be discerning, right? If this is just where we come every week to check off the boxes, if I do enough good things, then things are going to go well in my life. Church can become an empty ritual that's more about me than it is about God. Even the ordinances in the church, right? Baptism, the Lord's Supper. I can believe more in baptism than I do in the finished work of Jesus. We just need to be discerning, church. That God has given us these great things to point us to him. We can't do what Israel did and turn those into empty religion that is powerless. One final thought on this section. Uh, the, the Philistines' response here is interesting. They respond in fear. They hear the noise coming from, from Israel, and it's interesting that the Philistines' theology here is actually better than Israel's, and that they realize it's not the ark, it's the God of the ark, and that's who they're afraid of. They've heard the stories. And it causes them to fight even harder and more sacrificially. I think it's just striking here, maybe a, a word of warning for the church, the people of God, that, that God's enemies here were more passionate 
and have more energy about their pagan ideas and their pagan beliefs than the people of God did. And they, they knew the true God. And Israel was probably going through the motions here because they had the magic ark. They had the genie in the bottle. They could just pull it out whenever they needed it. And they were destroyed. They've, they learned that godless religion is powerless. And we see the devastation of what happens in the next several verses, and we certainly don't have time to cover these in detail. In verse 10, the Philistines fought again, and Israel was defeated. They fled every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and Eli's sons die. Israel is defeated even worse. They manufacture their human solution. They bring their lucky charm out for battle, and not only are they defeated, the ark is taken. And in the next several verses, we see the completion of Eli's family's devastation and their destruction. Eli's sons die in the same day as was prophesied in chapter 2. Eli himself, when he hears the news, he falls and breaks his neck, although his heart was probably broken long before that. And it doesn't stop there. His daughter-in-law gives birth and then dies in childbirth and names her son Ichabod. What a devastating end to this chapter. God's glory has departed from Israel. It's hard to describe what a devastating defeat this would have been. That not only did they get defeated, the ark, their ark, their maybe the greatest symbol of national pride. This would be like I struggle to find a, something that would be comparable to, to us. This would be like somebody um, defeating the United States in war and taking the Statue of Liberty over to their country and, and standing it up as a trophy. The humiliation here for Israel and the devastation of Israel, who are the people of God, is hard to explain. And the glory of God has departed from Israel. And they are God's people. I read this observation this week from a commentator that I thought was very instructive. When we think about what happens here in chapter 4 with God's judgment, the divine judgment here is not so much the vengeful presence of an angered God, but rather the imposed absence of a loving and protecting God. Hmm. This wasn't as much God pouring out his wrath on his people. This was God removing his love and loving and protecting hand and, and letting them reap the judgment of their own deeds. What a devastating end to this chapter. But you know there is hope here. This, this chapter is a part of a broader um, 
text called the, um, um, I don't remember what it's called, the Ark Narrative. The Ark Narrative that goes from chapter 4, 5, and 6 to the beginning of chapter 7, and I certainly don't want to preempt what's coming. But what happened here in chapter 4 was actually the catalyst to something good that is coming. And so there is hope here. That God's judgment here was actually merciful judgment. He didn't leave Israel in their sin, comfortable in their sin. He allowed judgment by taking away his hand. And it was actually merciful judgment because it brought them back. It led to repentance. In 2 Samuel, or 1 Samuel 7, when Samuel does come back on the scene, he says this to Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. God's judgment here was actually merciful in that it brought them back. Have you ever experienced that? That God did not leave you in your sin. He let, he let you experience the consequences of your sin and it brought you back to him. God's judgment here was a merciful act of a God who didn't give up on his people. There is also hope when you look to the future for Israel and that God gives them a merciful promise through the prophet Jeremiah. And the reason I want to bring this up is because it refers to the Ark of the Covenant. And I think this is an important picture that God is trying to draw for them. He is pointing forward to the new covenant that's coming and, and ultimately to the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. And he says this through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 3, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have mul multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. You're not going to need the ark anymore. Because at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of God and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. The day is coming, Israel, where you aren't going to have these little trinkets to turn into idols. No, you aren't going to need the ark anymore. Because my presence is going to be in the new covenant. My presence, my presence is going to be in you through the Holy Spirit. And one day in the new Jerusalem, you're not going to need the ark. You're not even going to need the sun because my presence will be there. There is a hope for Israel and there is a hope for us. God's merciful promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Who in, in Hebrews 9, we see the completion of this picture that he entered the true tabernacle, not the temporary one, and offered himself as an eternal sacrifice once for all time, once for all who would believe from every tribe and tongue and nation. 
so that the ark, the tabernacle, was no longer needed. As I think about this picture of God's merciful judgment, I want to close with, with this thought, because I think this is foreshadowing of what was coming for us. This idea of justice and mercy is dominant in our faith and actually is dominant in many religions. But here's what's the distinction of the Christian faith when it comes to justice and mercy, and this is really important to understand. Religion that has a holy God but does not have Jesus has a problem when it comes to mercy and how you deal with sin. Because without Jesus Christ, a holy God has to set aside justice in order to be merciful. Think about it this way. Somebody commits murder and they go into court and uh, one of these judges that we prayed for this morning is, is on the bench and they are hearing this case and the evidence is presented and it's obvious that this person is guilty and the judge goes to give the sentence, and the judge says, you know what, this guy's you know, done a lot of good things in his life. I mean, nobody's perfect. Uh, you know, if, if you weigh you know, the pros and cons, I mean, he's done more good things than bad things, so I'm just gonna let him, I'm gonna let him go. I'm gonna overlook this and let him go. Now, what would you say about that judge? You might say that he's merciful, but you wouldn't say he's just, right? He did not uphold the law. He did not uphold the standard of the law. He did not apply the appropriate satisfaction and penalty for that law. You see, without Jesus, religion cannot answer the question of mercy without setting aside justice. Now, if that judge had done something different and said, no, you're guilty, and I condemn you to the penalty in this state is death, and I condemn you to death, and the gavel comes down, and then he takes off his robe and he walks down to the bailiff and says, let him go, I'm going to take his place. Now, if he had done that, you could say, not only was he merciful, but he was just at the same time. The cross of Jesus Christ accomplishes something that no other religion can claim. Jesus Christ, through his perfect righteousness, the God-man who went to the cross to offer the perfect, blameless, sinless sacrifice for sin that completely satisfies the justice of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God completely satisfied so that he could then be merciful to us and to all who believe. God did not have to set aside his justice in order to be merciful. In the cross of Jesus Christ, the intersection of God's justice and God's mercy. Praise the Lord, right? And so I think we can say this, this statement that we started with, that godless religion is powerless, I think we can take that further in saying that Christless religion is powerless.
Because without Jesus, religion is powerless to save. It is powerless to forgive. It is powerless to reconcile us to God. It is powerless to bring life and joy and peace. But remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it has the power to save and forgive and reconcile and bring life and joy and peace. Oh, church, what a tragedy it would be like Israel for us to know the true God. But live a life of empty religion that has no power to save. There are people who get saved in churches like this every week who have been sitting in churches like this their whole lives and it's just been religious ritual because that's what I'm supposed to do and it's never brought a change of heart and a change of life. If what you're doing on Sundays has no impact on your life on Mondays, it is empty religion that has no power. Please, please, if that's where you are, please come and talk to us. Talk to me. We want you to experience not a religion that is powerless, but a faith and a gospel and good news that is powerful to, to save and to forgive and to change you forever. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the gospel. And then you didn't give us a list of things to do to earn our way because we could never do it. But you gave us your son. You came to us. And you gave us your spirit. So your presence is with us at all times. And we're grateful for that. God, forgive us for honoring you with our lips when our hearts are far from you. Oh God, would you change us? Would you convict us? May our lives reflect uh, the power of the gospel to those around us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.